and welcome to Represent the Podcast, the show where I, Katie Beth McKinney, sit down with composers from historically marginalized and underrepresented backgrounds and discuss their works for the horn. Hope you enjoy and thanks for tuning in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Represent the Podcast, uh, the show where we're going to talk about works for horn by historically underrepresented and marginalized composers. So today I have with me Michelle Stiebelton, who is the professor of horn at Florida State University. And uh, I'm going to talk about a little bit about her pieces. We're going to go over how she writes for horn, why she writes for horn, which might be a little obvious, but we'll see. Um, Michelle, thank you for being here. I'm so excited to have you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I am honored. Um, so how did you start in music and, and composing? And those are probably two very different questions. Well, yeah, starting in music was, um, I was born into music. My mother is a professional musician, um, a pianist. And um, so, yeah, I've, I've been playing horn for longer than I should have for how well I play. Um, I've been playing horn for a lot of years. Um, but uh, in terms of the, the composition, um, I'm only just now beginning to identify as a composer. Um, it's a very new thing in my life to be doing at this level. Um, I took one composition class at the University of Michigan, and I started that class with William Bolcom and finished with Leslie Bassett, so pretty good teachers, um, although I admit it was only one class, and I've never had formal <laughs> lessons. Um, I operate on more of an instinct and having paid attention to how music is crafted. Um, I would never put myself on the same level as experienced and trained composers, though. So maybe in another 50 pieces, but um, <laughs> it's a big journey. I kind of love that. I mean, that's um, the world we're living in is where we're just kind of faking it until we make it, really. So, you know, I, I didn't consider myself a professional horn player, but then I said, oh, wait, I'm making my money off of playing horn. So I guess that's what I do. You know, and so it's it's very funny how those little things kind of snowball until we're like, oh, yeah, that is a label I can apply to myself, which is pretty great. Um, so I, this might be a silly question, but what drew you to compose for the horn specifically? <laughs> well, um, I... <laughs> In your intro, um, I play horn. Um, so I, yeah, that was sort of a no-brainer. Um, I have not, I, I have composed a few pieces for other instruments as well, um, but nothing that either was complete or that I liked. Kind of focusing on horn. Yeah, great. And what gave you that first moment where you're like, hmm, I kind of wanted to write something down. Like, did you have a melody in your head that was spinning around or? The first time that I was outside of class, outside of having it be an assignment, the first time that I really was motivated to write something down um, was uh, I had a, a student when I was teaching in Midland, Texas, and I believe he was an eighth grader, and we were trying to find a piece for him for solo and ensemble, and and he was kind of annoying me. Um, <laughs> I no, I don't like that. No, I don't like that because I played a few measures of this, that, and the other. And finally I said, well, what do you want? And he said, well, I want something that's familiar. And I said, well, if it's familiar, it means you've played it. You need to play something new. Well, no, not that kind of familiar, but just sort of familiar. And I kind of lost my, um, <clears throat> uh, I kind of lost myself a little and I got um, snide, which maybe he didn't recognize as snide, I don't know. Um, <laughs> Well, what do you want? Variations on Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And I picked up my horn and I started just messing around with Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. And his eyes lit up and he said, yeah, I want to play that piece. What's that piece called? And so I went home and wrote it. And I wrote a variation on Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star that was a grade four. And I put in the things that he wasn't practicing well or that he was struggling with in his etudes. And then I asked him what one element did he want to have in the piece? And he said, double tonguing. So of course the last, it was a theme of variations and the last variation, deca deca dun, deca deca dun, deca deca dun, dun. <laughs> so I was able to put in the double tonguing for him. And he was completely jazzed and played it for solo and ensemble. So that was when I started, that was 32 years ago. And then um, I tried writing a few things along the way, I wouldn't say to great success. And um, and then I started getting inspired yeah, just a few years ago, um, figuring out at, the, at this point in my journey that unaccompanied horn literature is my genre. That's what I love. That's what I've loved doing and performing. And that's really where I wanted to be writing. So so the first piece that I had published, Haya Habana, was inspired from my trip to Cuba and combined that with I needed to be practicing 
um, low register and multiphonic. So I basically wrote it, wrote it as an etude for myself. And then the second piece, um, Luna Boliviana, was sort of, it was inspired by my missing um, my friend in Bolivia. And uh, during the pandemic, uh, the lockdown portion of the pandemic, I think we still have a pandemic, but when I was teaching online all day long, one of my Zoom backgrounds was the Valley of the Moon in Bolivia. And it feels sort of desolate and lonely. And, and that, of course, matched this image of how many people were handling the pandemic. And so I started just kind of improvising on the horn and then admittedly, I did do some research on Bolivian music to finish the piece because the first half was improvised from my heart from that experience. And then I did a little bit of, of, of study on, on their music to craft the rest of the piece. But that was how that piece came about. That's such a beautiful inspiration. Um, I, I think that's so important to have that that little germ of an idea that leads into something musical. And that's where I, I've tried composing myself and have horribly, horribly failed. And I always get stuck on the idea. And then I, you know, I'm like, oh, maybe I should try something else. And so here I am podcasting. Um, you know? Which is fantastic. But, Somebody needs to do it, so. I guess that's fair. And I love the idea of challenging yourself, um, really taking that on with your piece and being like, okay, this is what I need to work on. Because um, you know, let's be honest, we all need to work on our low registers, we all need to work on multiphonics. Those are some of the hardest things to do on our instrument, I think, and to make them sound, you know, beautiful, I think is, is even more challenging. Um, so when you are writing for horn, what are some difficulties that you bump into? Well, as I said, I haven't written that many pieces so far, but mm -hmm. if I'm writing an etude for myself, um, I have a tendency to make it way too hard for <laughs> anybody to actually want to play. Um, I think you said in one of your emails that you think Kaya Habana is unplayable, right? <laughs> it is. It's unplayable. I can play it with poorly tuned multiphonics because I'm not great at multiphonics. <laughs> so for me, it's playable, but uh, if you don't mind the intonation, um, but for the general person, it's not really playable. Um, the Luna Boliviana, um, a little part of it was meant to be kind of a high horn etude. And, mm -hmm. and I feel like high is my strength. So yeah, I can play it sort of. Um, my, my student played it at the International Horn Conference beautifully. Yeah, it is playable, but it's difficult. So finding the correct difficulty level for the intended audience, when my ideas go, I, because I do get ideas and they start running in my head and they go far beyond who my intended audience is, because now I'm thinking about my intended audience. Uh, right. I'm writing now, I've set parameters on myself. Um, as to, to, I want my intended audience to be somebody who wants to play something sort of a little more active than the Corolla Adagio and maybe a little more technically difficult, but not as difficult as Espana, for example. So it needs to be sort of in between that. And that means I don't want to go above a, a high B. I don't want to mm -hmm. have a Brazilian lip trills. I don't want to have a random pedal E that pops out at the end of four and a half minutes. Um, I, I mean, not that I don't love that piece. It's, it's, that's one of the pieces that, that got me places. Um, mm -hmm. I, I love Espana and I love the crawl. I think it's a beautiful, profound work, but mm -hmm. we need something in between. Yes. That's kind of a stepping stone to learn that style. Yeah. So now I'm writing right. for an intended audience or an intended performer. And I need to keep the parameters within that. And would you say your intended performer is a college student? Then that would be like learning how to do unaccompanied horn, or yeah. So maybe a sophomore performance major, somebody take oh, wonderful unaccompanied work to a competition. I just mm -hmm. watched the International Horn Competition of America, and we heard the same three pieces over and over, even though there were seven or eight on the list. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I don't know if the people who didn't make the second round had chosen different pieces, but um, but we need another piece to fill that role of something that's, mm -hmm. that's both lyrical and technical, you know, a, like a, an exam piece would be both lyrical and technical, a little high, a little low, little hand stopped and, you know, uh, one or two advanced techniques, but nothing crazy and nothing so sedate that it doesn't perk their interest whether it's the people right. or the audience. Yeah, that sounds like that's a very fine line. Um, and especially with unaccompanied pieces, I think that can very 
easily go into sounding like an etude and sounding, you know, we lose the audience sometimes. Um, I've performed the Persichetti several times now, and it's always funny to me when my non-musician family come, the, the members who don't do this for a living, and they come and they hear that piece and they go, okay, that was a little weird. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. They're not used to listening to this kind of music. <laughs> I think that one's very difficult to sell because it's mm -hmm. hard to latch on to a story. You know, the Kroll, I think you can sell it without a story, but if you give the audience a few sentences about what it's about, you can play mm -hmm. it for literally anyone and they will love the piece. And, and España, of course, tells a story and it's all, you know, kitsch Spanish music. So, so that's fun and entertaining and familiar. And, mm -hmm. um, and uh, the Berga Hornlock tells a story of, of, you know, vistas and, and you can really hear the sounds of Scandinavia and, you know, oh, yeah, it's beautiful. Scandinavia. Yeah. So, so I think, yeah, I think the Persichetti is one of the more difficult ones to, to mm -hmm. sell as a performer. I performed it once in my undergraduate career and then once again years years later and I found that when I spoke to my audience I I for me it's about I hear outer space that may be completely my own brain but I'm just hearing the planets zooming around go figure um but uh yeah I found that speaking to the audience about it definitely engaged them a lot more um is that something you teach your students at FSU is how to speak to the audience um in a recital setting or anything like that we talk about doing that wouldn't say that most of my students choose to. I struggle <laughs> to go beyond their name and what piece they're going to play. Um, I'm mm -hmm. starting now to put it in the syllabus as a mandatory requirement. Um, starting with my graduate students, that they mm -hmm. they have a requirement that they must give oral program notes. And oh, that's wonderful. They, they love it. The grad students think that it is a great way to connect with the audience. I think the younger students are just fearful of it. Mm -hmm. I would have been petrified in my undergrad to speak to my audience, but as I've gone through way too many degrees, I definitely have learned that that's so important. If you don't have a rapport with the audience, you really, you really, it's, it's a mediocre performance, even if you play wonderfully, you know, it, it's so, I think that's wonderful that you're working with students on that. That's so, so important. Um, I, yeah, I wish I did that more when I was that age, it would have come easier later. <laughs> um, ask, you didn't ask about this, but. Um, oh, no, please. A great performance can sell mediocre music and a poor performance can unsell really great music. So mm -hmm. as much as a composer might write the most profound music in the world or the most fun music in the world, if it's not performed well or with mm -hmm. a good intention, a musical intention, then it doesn't matter what the composer wrote. So composers rely 100% on performers. And, you know, maybe I say this because I've spent most of my life a performer and I'm not saying performers are more important. You need to have notes to play, but, but the performers are integral to the composer having a successful piece. I 100% agree. Completely, completely agree. And that's a really profound thought. And I want this podcast to be for both performers and composers to listen to. So I think that's really good advice for both sides of it, um, especially with, you know, maybe composers who are working with performers, working with them on the story of the piece so that when they go to perform it for the first time, they have a very clear image of the music of it. Um, I think as horn players, since our instrument is so precarious at times, um, we get caught up in the notes and the technique. And I think we forget that it's about the music and it's about enjoying what we're playing um, or hopefully enjoying what we're playing. So uh, yes, I, I think that's really, really important. Um, to circle back to how you compose, um, what is your composition process like? Do you do you start with a melody and expand from there? You said you did with the variations, um, but when you're doing you know more complex music like Hayamana, where, where do you kind of start with that? Yeah, I, I start with a melody um, and it, it either is inspired by somebody else's music or uh, like like I said, with the Luna Boliviana with, with a photo and a place and a feeling. Um, I, I compose with the horn in my hands. I compose from behind the horn. So I start playing something and I, I might not hit record right away, but I will play and play and they go, ooh, I think I'm getting somewhere. And then I'll hit record on my phone so that I can document the 18th time that I've done something a little differently. And if I like that one, you know, I, I like it on my phone and move on. And, um, and then I put pencil to paper. I'm a manuscript paper kind of girl. 
I was going to ask. I love knowing that. <laughs> I yeah, and and I don't even gosh, High Havana wasn't even really written on manuscript manuscript paper. It was written like scribbled on notebook paper for the most part, just like little lines like that looked like little um, mountains, or you know the little wolf calls in the Messiaen. Like oh yeah, I had I would write a note or or three note names and some squiggles that looked like that, and and that's. I, that was my manuscript. It was really embarrassing. Um, Do you still have that manuscript? Probably somewhere. <laughs> oh, you should hang on to that. That'll be fun someday to, to you know, somebody's going to write their paper. <laughs> right. You got to put it in a museum someday. You know? <laughs> so, so, yeah, my, my current piece, I am putting it on manuscript paper. Um, one, so I, I start with the horn and, and then I, once I get something I think I'd like, um, and I play it, you know, a lot of times, a lot of different ways. And then I put it down on paper. And that's when I can start editing. And you know, I know maybe even when I'm writing it down on paper, this transition doesn't work. But then at that point, seeing it, that visual connection is helpful for me. Um, so so it doesn't all have to be sort of a memorized, plucked out of my head kind of thing. And we are graphic notation readers after all. So so yeah, I do that, and then. So far, I've paid other people to do the engraving in finale because I admit I have very poor finale skills. <laughs> um, I mean, I can put something in finale to a rudimentary level, but then I have to pay mm -hmm. somebody to fix it. Well, at a certain point, sometimes it's just easier to do someone like faster. You know, they're they're going to get it done faster than we. I also have terrible finale skills, so I'm said, you know, you go do it. This is your skill set. Thank you. You know, I appreciate you. So it's it's worth the time and the investment in it. <laughs> and I'm happy to support a student who needs the money. Oh, that's a very good point too. And and all these like very young undergraduate students are so much more tech savvy than I could ever hope to be. And so it's wonderful to just let them get into it and get going. Yep. That's so great. We love that. <laughs> um, so now your piano parts, you said you've done a little bit of that um, since you did solo ensemble. I'm assuming that was with piano as well, right? How do you find composing for piano? Well, I think the problem is that I wrote a piano part that I could play and mm. I had five years of piano lessons from age five to 10. So clearly those piano parts, the piano part in the Twinkle Twinkle Little Star um, could have been played by a 10 year old. And <laughs> I, I think that I could conceive of something more advanced than that. But um, if I have somebody who is interested and willing to do that, I would rather enter into a collaboration and stick to the horn side of things and let someone else deal with the pianistic side of things. I, I don't know. I might at some point consider doing something more complex with piano uh, on my mm -hmm. own. And I may consider taking lessons and learning to play better uh, because of composition. But that's all uh, in the future for the moment. Well, there's something kind of nice about bringing in somebody who has the piano chops because then it becomes collaborative. Um, composing can get a little lonely if you're just by yourself, you know, tinkering around with things. So getting someone else's ear on something is, is kind of nice and it may inspire you to different melodic, you know, movements or things like that. So I think that's or new harmonies. Yeah. Or new harmonies. Exactly. Um, I, I always am surprised by the things that my friends come up with when I'm listening to what they're, you know, improvising on the piano and my ear doesn't follow them. It's so much fun, you know, to hear everyone else's minds at work. So this is kind of a, um, a broad question, but how would you characterize your compositional language? <laughs> I know it's a, it's, a, it's a weird esoteric question. <laughs> okay, so I haven't written enough music yet to say that I have a compositional language, but if I had to characterize, I would say that it's hornistic. Um, it's oh. idiomatic for the instrument. It, and it might be really hard, but it's still idiomatic. So for instance, mm -hmm. Haya Hibana, there's a lick that I, I don't have my horn sitting in front of me, but it goes and those are all placed on overtones. So throw down your B flat side open and you have the first couple licks and then it's E flat horn F horn. And and so it's idiomatic. Um, it makes right. it difficult, but it's idiomatic. So I, I, I do understand how the horn works and what will and will not work on the horn. Um, mm -hmm. so. And there's definitely music you can play sometimes where you can tell the composer did not have an understanding of how the horn works. Yeah. <laughs> that that does exist in the world. I, I saw an orchestral part recently, um, and I don't <laughs> want to go too more specific than that. Sure. It was a high D just plucked out of the thin air. 
Oh, goodness. You know, okay, in theory, that's possible, but you're not going to get a lot mm-hmm. of performances with that. And and possible doesn't make it probable, likely, or having willing participants. Right. And then there's moments of peril in, in extremely well-known pieces that we know. I just played the, the Beethoven Emperor Concerto a little while ago. And I think we all know that high B-flat piano entrance in the principal horn. And, you know, it's just, it's a peril. You know, it may or may not happen that day. Um, and coming in so softly on that high pitch without anything going wrong is always a question mark. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah it's absolutely. That in our literature. We, we need no, there's so much of it. <laughs> Completely agree. Um, so I know that you, like you said, you are, you know, new to the composition game in terms of really considering yourself that. Um, so you probably haven't worked a lot with commissioners or anything like that, but have you yourself commissioned pieces? Yeah, I have not yet worked with commissioners. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, yes, I've commissioned, I don't know, more than two dozen works. Oh, that's incredible. Or unaccompanied horn, horn and piano, or two horns and piano, Bontrager. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been involved with the commissioning of a lot of music. Yeah. That's wonderful. Can you speak on that and and talk about that process? Sure. So, um, yeah, so the process, well, you have to ask somebody. Um, (laughs) Right. You pick somebody you know, and and at a time that they are able to say yes, um, you know, that you give them enough time and it's not, hey, could you write this by next week? Um, and then if it's somebody you know, it makes it a lot easier. If it's someone who knows your playing and your integrity, um, that's that's helpful. You can cold call people as well. Um, mm-hmm. That has worked. Um, I've been surprised by some composers who've said yes. And uh, But most of the composers I've commissioned from were people that I knew. And, mm-hmm. and so that, that was helpful. Um, yeah, you ask them how much they're going to charge and you have to find the funding to do it. We do have the mm-hmm. Mayor Ramon um, Commissioning Assistance Fund through the International Horn Society. And that's very helpful with a lot of my commissions and the ones that Lisa and I have done. Maybe it might have been in her name, but it would be on mm-hmm. our group. And Lisa, Lisa is your uh, duo partner, right? Oh, Lisa Bond. Yes. yes. We have a horn yes. near image. And- right. I believe I've heard your um, recording of the Oasin. Um, I've yes. played that one on repeat a couple times, actually. Yeah. Um, I, oh, that's commissioned. I knew Eric, because he had been a regular guest at, at FSU, and mm-hmm. so I, I asked him, I said, you know, I'm asking for the sun and the moon, but, you know, is there any way that you could write a piece for two horns and piano? And he said, yes, I can mm-hmm. do it, and, like, dashed it off, and there we have Gold Coast Horn. And that's, and that's someone who knows how to write for horn. You can hear that in everything he writes. He's he's spent some time with some horn players, which is really great. Yeah, yeah, he's he's a wonderful man. His um his sonata is a little bit difficult. And there is actually a story behind that, but it's not mine to tell. So <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> actually the way that I got started in commissioning music, I was pretty young. Um it was right out of the gate when I came to Florida State University. I I started my job here at age 24 and I knew nothing. And I wasn't <laughs> established in the profession and and so um the first time that i wanted to perform at an international horn conference i asked the host and the host said well the only place that i can find for you is on the new music concert because back then they had a separate concert just for the weird new music and everything else was you know ducat villanelle and gruyere and and all that um and so i was relegated to this new music concert and and so I thought, well, let's see, new music. Hmm. Um, I had just met Paul Basler and like, hey, Paul, could you write me something for this? Unaccompanied because I was told there wouldn't be a pianist available. So <laughs> there was my first commission and or commissioned uh, piece that I commissioned. And mm-hmm. and then the next year, you know, I'd love to play on this conference. Well, the only place I can put you is the new music program. So, you know, hey, Paul, could you write me another piece? <laughs> And so that that's kind of how I got started. And then I did branch out and commission from other people. But that was also what taught me that I loved unaccompanied music. Mm-hmm. I was forced into and new music. I was forced into doing it and then discovered myself along the way. I had only played one unaccompanied piece before that, and that was Espana on my senior recital. But mm-hmm. other than that, I'd never played any unaccompanied music. I hadn't played a lot of modern music. I think it depends on what you call modern. I had mm-hmm. 20th century music. I, I had played in the 
the Contemporary Directions Ensemble at the University of Michigan. So I played a lot of really new music, but um, not horn-centered new music. So what is it about unaccompanied music that you love? I love that you have to create the entire experience for the audience and there's no one else to help you. It's, it, it all relies directly on you. And, and so there's more responsibility that you have to bring to the phrasing. And, and then I think it depends on the composer. With a lot of pieces, there's a little more leeway if you're by yourself as far as how you address some of that musicality. Um, I'm somebody known for taking liberties, and, and so that fits me very well. Now, there are pieces out there that you wouldn't take liberties, that the composer writes exactly every single note, every single rest, every single accent and staccato. But, um, but a lot of composers, I think they, they write something and hope that the performer will just be a good musician and sell it in a positive musical way. So that's what mm -hmm. I love. Oh, that's fabulous. I think that's great too. And and I kind of fell into playing in a company music the same way. And um, for me, the, the Persicati was the first one, but the second one I found, and it was actually um, uh, a student who had won the IHS composition contest, I believe, with this piece, um, Alexis Carrier, uh, The Final Battle Cry, if you know that one. Um, yep, that piece for me just sealed the deal. I was like, "This is what I wanted. This is so much fun." So, it's it's finding those moments in the in the silences. I think that is really magical. Well, and that's a big thing um, when you are performing unaccompanied music is you have to allow for those silences. And my mm -hmm. first performance um, was with Espana, and I remember having to write into my music two seconds, three seconds, four seconds to sit and count. And of course, I probably went. 1001, 1004. I'm sure that four seconds was probably only two. And I would do that. <laughs> right. say it was great, but the silences weren't long enough. It's like, oh, but I wrote in to count them and I know I counted them, but I'm sure I counted them too fast. And so that's, <laughs> yeah, you're right that the music has to breathe and you have to um, find how to live in the silences as well. Mm -hmm. And then the hardest thing about that is time moves differently on stage. <laughs> I think it, it pulls and stretches and rushes when we think it's not. and It's definitely very different. <laughs> so when you are going to commission a piece, do you have an idea for a, a subject in mind? Or do you just find somebody you like and say, hey, I want this? Or how does that kind of work? I've done both. Um, so sometimes just I would love a piece for unaccompanied horn, maybe that parameter or um, I commissioned the Paul Basler Contos um, for the Southeast Horn Workshop student competition. And so I did put some parameters on it. This was going to be for students. And um, uh, Lisa and I, with our Safari album, we commissioned works with the theme Safari and we let the composer take it wherever they wanted. So, so we have animal safaris of different kinds. We have um, a safari of existentialism. Um, we have different types of safaris on that album. So that was really fun to see if we gave them such a broad theme, what they would do with it. And, and I like giving a composer a, a, enough leeway that they can be themselves and do something that they want to create. But I think it is also helpful to put parameters on something if you need it to be playable by a certain group of people, or to fit the theme of a program. I, I think it's fair to put some parameters on. And that kind of leads me to my, my, my I guess my next um, set of advice questions for young performers who'd like to commission a piece um, as someone who's been on both sides of it. Uh, how would you, let's say you've never commissioned a piece before, you're, you're somebody who's in their undergraduate degree or something like that, and you wanna commission a piece and the composer sends something back to you and you don't love it. Is, has that ever, I want to ask, you know, for specifics or anything, but, you know, has that ever happened to you? If you want to help guide the process, is there any advice for that? It has happened to me. Um, it's a tough spot to be in. I'm not sure that I always handled it as well as I should have. Um, in a few cases, uh, there was willingness to perform and record the work, and it was the record engineer who said, record producer said nope this isn't going on the album um, oh wow so so that's happened unfortunately um again mm -hmm. i was probably not woman enough to be gracious about it in the way that it was handled and and i do regret that 
Um, yeah, if you can have a relationship with a composer and work with that person, that is really helpful. Um, some composers, I think, are very willing and others are not so much. It depends on the person. Um, I, I remember I was, uh, well, FSU was part of a consortia commission for the um, Sea Dreams by David Mazlanka for Two Horns and Wind Band. And we got the first copy. There were 10 schools involved in this commission. And we got the first copy of the horn part. And within an hour, nine people had emailed David and said, this spot is unplayable. It was oh, wow. a bee that went on for days. Oh, so like he does in his woodwind quintets. <laughs> Yeah. It, it was it was impossible. And I, I was the only person who didn't email him. And again, you know, maybe I should have said something, although there were nine other people who had already contributed that to the conversation. I looked at it and said, Oh, that's unplayable. I'll have to take a breath in the middle. And that was actually how he solved the problem. He said, Oh, well, you can just take a breath here. And <laughs> he didn't rewrite the B that took forever. Nobody said it's unplayable because we don't want to sustain a high B for that long. They said it's unplayable. Mm -hmm because we can't sustain it for that long without breathing. So he added a breath. He didn't take away the high B. You know, I think better communication, maybe the 10 of us could have gotten together and said, what do we want to tell him about this? Do we just mm -hmm. want to say add a breath or do we want to recommend, can the note not be this long? Maybe add right. the breath to take it down an octave for the rest of the note. Like we could have maybe uh, approached it in a different way Instead, we all had to play a really, really, really long high B with a breath. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and now it's out there. So anybody else playing mm -hmm. has to do the same thing. So, right. And it is a beautiful piece. It is a beautiful piece. It's mm -hmm. also really facey. Right. <laughs> That's a good word, facey. I haven't heard that one, but I really like that a lot. <laughs> I'm going to steal that. As I've gotten older, I think now I'm much more interested in having those kinds of communications. Mm -hmm. I did tell a composer no once when he wanted, he, he asked me if, um, if I could play three notes at a time. And I said, well, I can play one and sing one. And if you write the correct notes, I can get resultant overtones if I can sing them in tune. Um, right. you, know, but you have to find something that works in the range of the horn and my voice that I can, you know, do those and get them in tune. And he said, no, no, no. I mean, play two notes and sing one. And he wanted me to split my aperture um, and get the octave, you know, when you double buzz. Oh, and you get the yeah. And then sing. And I said, no. That's a technique that would work beautifully for the cello, but for the horn, maybe not so much. <laughs> I, I just didn't want to explore that. And I, I just held a flat no. And yeah, fair and enough. He was, he was very disappointed. And I felt badly that he was disappointed, but that was just beyond my interest of technique. Yeah, that makes sense to me. Yeah. So we're going to switch gears kind of entirely and move into the, the music industry section, if that's all right. Um, I'd love to know if you feel like you've had any challenges in your career, any obstacles you butted up against. I know you started being a professor at a young age. I imagine that was probably a little intimidating. That was very intimidating. Yeah. Um, <laughs> intimidating. Uh, the relaxation long tones that I sort of became famous for about 25 years ago, 30 years ago, um, those were born because I had, I had developed so much anxiety in playing um, from starting the job so early. And I was also on a one-year position and had to re-audition for the job. So I felt mm -hmm. that first year as if every concert were my audition. And, and I developed an anxiety issue. And so the relaxation long tones were, uh, that was my response. How do I develop a way of playing without all of this anxiety? Um, so I've been, been championing relaxed playing ever since then that would have been 1991 or 1992 maybe um a long time ago so yeah i've had a lot of challenges um and the challenges change as you go through the different stages of your career and especially in a career where you have so many different elements it's not that you go to work and you do one thing and you do one thing all the time you do so many different things so I, I can say that I personally was the biggest challenge to my own career. I didn't know enough when I began, and I didn't know enough to find a mentor. Um, and back then, they didn't assign people mentors. Now, I think most programs give you a mentor when you start, but I didn't know enough to even ask for one. Um, I had some personal challenges along the way. Um, there were some times that 
I didn't push myself hard enough when I should have. And now I'm getting older. I'm facing, you know, just the physical challenges of getting older, my reluctance to jump into social media. Um, I, <laughs> I, I can. I have so far chosen not to very much. Um, and, and that's, yeah, I'm getting in my own way. Um, or mm -hmm. maybe mentally, just, you know, like with this anxiety that had developed, um, so many of my challenges have been myself getting in my own way. But um, I can say learning to be a better teacher has been a lifelong challenge. And I'm not mm -hmm. done yet. Um, there are days that I don't live up to being the teacher that I want to be. But I keep trying. And um, learning how to play the horn better is it's always been an issue. And Mr. Scout, if you're listening, um, I should have let you change my embouchure. You were right. <laughs> Oh, is that not the most frustrating thing when you look back at your old teachers and I'm like, I'm so sorry, you were right the whole time. Yes. <laughs> I can look at every single one of my former teachers and say that to their faces. <laughs> yes. My officer has been the bane of my existence my entire career. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, so I, and then, I mean, there have been other challenges too. Um, I mean, lots and lots, and some of them just because I was young and stupid, some of them because maybe I chose not to work hard enough or... I worked in the wrong way or mm. I didn't understand um, I didn't understand the social construct of my job I, there have been some hardships along the way just yes because I was a woman um, I will flat out say that but uh, a lot of the problems didn't have as much to do with my being a woman as my getting in my own way or being an idiot this <laughs> you know there's something about that i i have found i've had a similar experience and i have really tried to channel that into my teaching so that i can look at my students and hopefully they'll listen i mean sometimes people have to learn for themselves which is the mistake that i made over and over um but you know i can say hey i did this exact same thing and butted my head against this wall as many times as you're doing it's much easier if you walk around the wall you know <laughs> um and I, that's i think the the be painful beauty of learning how to do these things all on your own is that you can then pass them to the next generation and wince when they make the same mistakes but cheer when they don't and then you mentioned being a woman and, and the hardships that come with that and that's one of the next questions i wanted to talk about is is um do you feel like you've experienced any um obstacles based on gender identity um growing up you know playing horn yes yes and now in my mm -hmm. hometown i did not experience that at all i mean it was an incredibly supportive environment um, the head of our music program was a man, but a very enlightened, wonderful human being. And um, my first horn teacher was a woman. And so I, I didn't see any, any gender bias growing up. Mm -hmm. um, we didn't really have other very many races in our town. So I didn't really, I didn't see any racial bias, but we also didn't have a lot of diversity in just a tiny little town. 98% um, Caucasian Republican. Uh, you know, um, I didn't really see that. But but then once I left, um, I I did. Yes. So yes, I have. Uh, I, I can say that being a woman has not always helped my career. So this is where I get into the dilemma of you know as an as an older woman now. Um, I I feel like I should be letting girls know where we were at and where we're at now and how far we've come. But, and I have a lot of stories. Um, I also have a philosophy though, that if the people who wronged me have changed the way that they do business or changed their belief system, it's not my place to out them. Mm, okay. I embrace their changes and I celebrate the wins and, and mm -hmm. it's not my place to tell those stories because it would now harm the men who have, have learned and become gracious and open-minded and so, so I don't really want to, to get it too involved in that. But yes, there, I have a lot of stories. Um, <laughs> uh, most women of my generation have felt bias at every turn. And I am very thankful <clears throat> for the women who came before me and really paved the way um, because every generation it's easier. Right. It, it definitely, it, you, when you hear the stories of uh, people who were active in the 30s, 40s, 50s, you know, when you read about Helen Kotas, and then when you read in the, the 60s and 70s, and all these different generations that came about, you can definitely see the progress we're going through. Um, obviously, we probably both can agree that there's always more <laughs> that can be improved upon. Um, 
So do you have any advice for, you know, young women horn players or um, any, anybody who's coming up against that marginalized, you know, barrier um, in this day and age? Well, I think that, that to some extent, I, and this is very, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm broadly stereotyping. There are mm-hmm. two kinds of women, the women who are out there loud and proud shouting at the world that we need to change things and we need those people and then there are the women mm-hmm. who just keep their head down and do their work and hope that they uh at some point get what they deserve in terms of recognition and and yes maybe they have to do their job better than the people around them um and uh, i've always been th- that type of person um i w- i didn't have the constitution to to poke my head up and and you know scream lawsuit or or um, you know, share share those stories with the world. I've just always tried to keep my head down, do my job, and hope at some point that my doing my job helps to elicit change. Um, that the change comes from 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 my everyday actions of inviting men into the conversation instead of yelling at them that they need to just change. Uh, sure. There's room for both in the world. I have a great amount of respect for the women who have taken their employers um, to court and, and mm-hmm. shared their, their really ugly stories with the world. And I know a lot of those women have been persecuted for it. And so mm-hmm. I value and appreciate what they were able to do that I didn't feel comfortable doing. But mm-hmm. there's also merit, I think, in doing your job well and one person at a time inviting them to see that you're not the enemy and that you yes indeed can do the job mm-hmm. it's kind so, of a two-pronged attack yeah. two-pronged attack and i think that you mm-hmm. need to decide to some extent i mean there's obviously room in the middle but for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction or or the same for every inaction so as you go through your life you have to decide is this the battle that i want to fight what are the consequences of fighting that battle and and will i win the war over this battle or if I can't live with those consequences, maybe this isn't the right battle. Maybe there's a different way. Um, like you were saying about hitting your head against the wall when you're struggling with, you know, like a horn technique or something, mm-hmm. you know, find a way to go around the wall. And it's kind of that way. You have to decide, do you want to hit your head against the wall until you break it? But the result of that is that you now have a broken, bleeding head and right. no longer function. Um, or or do you find a way around the wall and it might take longer and it might be much of a quieter trip, which one is more effective? I think there's room in the world for both, but, but each woman has to decide for herself, how far do I want to go with this particular torch? Is it worth getting fired over? If it's not worth getting fired over, then maybe that's not the right battle. It's a way to win that battle. Right. And I imagine that can be frustrating advice to some people who want the change now, who want it fixed now. And it's it's really hard, especially um, as you get older and you have the bills, you know, that come in and you say, okay, I can't afford to be unemployed. You know, and that's that's a tricky, a tricky line to walk for sure. Um, Is your line when you're young and have no responsibilities? Right. Um, (laughs) Is your line when you're retired and have no responsibilities uh, Mm -hmm. on either end of it? But when you're in the middle of it, yeah. It, it, it's a very difficult decision and each person mm-hmm. can figure out for him or herself, whether it's being a woman or any other marginalized, you know, um, part of society. There are people out there doing the hard work of the fight. And I, again, I embrace and truly appreciate those people. I just could never have been one of them. I, I wouldn't right. still have my job. My, my not having my job in music and um, being a flight attendant wouldn't, wouldn't have helped this profession any by keeping mm-hmm. my head down and continuing to do my job hopefully well maybe i've affected change just in being here in being the first female mm-hmm. brass teacher in at, at fsu stuck it out and i'm still here after all of these years i'm still employed and can be an example and bring in um women or or underrepresented people into the program and right them and so maybe i'm doing as much good 
the way that maybe I'm rationalizing. I don't know. But I feel like <laughs> there's, there's room for both. Everybody can't get fired over their jobs because then there would be no jobs with women in them. Right. And I imagine in the 90s when you were hired on, you probably could count the number of women horn professors on one hand, um, let alone women brass professors. So, yeah, getting that first step in the door was huge. Um, can you talk a little bit about what that process was like about getting that job? Because I know that's not quite what this podcast is about, but I, and you don't have to talk about this for too long if you don't want to, but I'm curious about how that went. No, it, it's actually, um, it, it's a story about networking and, and doing what you do to the best of your abilities um, and, and a lot of luck. Um, I believe that mm -hmm. luck is a preparation meeting opportunity. So um, I, but I had luck. Um, I had just, uh, just done the American Horn Competition. Now it's the International Horn Competition in America. But um, I had I had won the university division and tied for second in the natural horn division. And there were photos in a spread in the horn call. So this is the background information. So our trumpet professor here asked another trumpet player um, that he knew in town who was married to one of our, our vocal faculty do you know of anybody we should be inviting to apply for this position? We're opening it up as either associate or assistant, um, you know, just kind of hedging our bets and not knowing what we're going to get. And he said, oh, well, there's this girl from my wife's hometown. Because the vocal faculty was from my hometown and grew up a mile from me, a couple of years older than I am. So every time that the two of them had come home to visit their family, they would listen to me play in a, a local contest or at the church or in a college recital. They always had a recital for the music majors um, over Christmas. And so they had heard me play lots of times. And then that particular trumpet player happened to read the horn call. And he said, well, there's this girl from, from my wife's hometown and she just won these competitions and you know, we know her, she'd be great. So they called me and invited me to apply. And I have to say that a horn player in my life at that time looked at me and said, oh, you know, you're just the token female for the applicant pool. Oh, no. And and I, you know, here I am thinking, oh, they invited me to apply. I have a chance at this. And and yeah, I was told flat out, you're you're the token female. They just need to Whoa. stack the applicant pool so that it looks like diversity. I mean, we didn't have the word diversity back then, really. But mm -hmm. um, and yeah, I was the token. And and so I submitted my application and. Um, six months went by and I heard nothing except through the grapevine. I'd heard that they had hired somebody and apparently the grapevine was wrong. They had not hired somebody. So they tried to call me. Um, uh, so at that point they said, well, who are we going to get? We'll make it a one year position. And the, uh, the people who had recommended me in the first place, the, the woman who was on the music faculty went supposedly, I, I just learned this story over Thanksgiving. She went, no kidding. she went into the dean's office and said, you need to hire Michelle. She's the right. Wow. And so they went and pulled my stuff out of the no pile. And they said, well, you know, um, anybody in the committee know any of her references? They tried calling me and it, um, my answering machine just kept leaving, you know, just kept, it was answering machine. I wasn't home. Um, I lived in town mm -hmm. and, and I wasn't home and I wasn't picking up my messages because I didn't expect anybody to be calling me. It was in June. And, and I'd applied in, in January. So um, anyway, so so Jim Croft, who was our director of bands, said, well, I know H. Bob Reynolds, who was the director of bands at Michigan. So I'll call him. And, and Bob said, I don't know her phone number, but I know where she is right now. Because his wife, and they weren't married yet, but his wife and I... Um, are really good friends and I was visiting her and at that moment I was in Ann Arbor visiting Kristen so he called to Kristen's apartment and said Kristen tell Michelle to call Jim Croft so I called and they said we want you to come and audition can you come tomorrow and I was I was barely practicing I was in playing playing prelude music for your brother's wedding shape um <laughs> be better than it, yeah. than it was it was middle movements of mozart's shape i wasn't in audition fighting shape and and but i had my horn with me at least um so i was in michigan my family's from michigan and my brother's um in pittsburgh so his wedding was in, in pittsburgh so i was able to buy an entire week by saying i can't possibly come it's my brother's wedding 
I will fly home to Texas on such and such a day, and then I can fly out the next day. So, that, well, I guess we'll have to wait a week if we, you know, because we have to. And so that bought me an entire week to practice. And so at that point, I love that. my horn and I bonded. And <laughs> music on because the, there was a recital, you know, there's a half recital on, on an audition. And I could only play music that was memorized because I didn't have any music with me except little movements of Mozart. So oh. um, luckily I'd done all these competitions. So I, I performed first movement of Mozart two, uh, the Francois Nocturne and the Francais Divertimento, because those were the things that were memorized. There were two measures mm -hmm. in Francais that I couldn't remember while I was in Michigan and Pittsburgh. And when I got home, I could open up my music and remember the <laughs> measures. And I flew out here and, and I played and I got the job that day. Um, but it was a one year and I had to run. Mm -hmm. So right. Then the next year I re-auditioned and fortunately I was able to keep the job. Um, I had a couple of other uh, job auditions lined up and had to call and say, I'm not. not yeah, I'm taken now. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I'm taken. So yeah, that was how I came to be at FSU. Did that feel a little vindicating getting to rub that in the face of the person who said, you, know, <laughs> you don't yeah. have to answer that if you don't want to, but <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> little moment of triumph you know <laughs> like take that yes. <laughs> that's wonderful <laughs> we love those moments where we're like yeah no i am here because i deserve to be here and not because i'm checking some box well, you know and the funny thing is um as of 1990 at least at fsu um being a female was no longer considered a minority even though we weren't equitable in the hiring we were right. no longer considered a minority. So I, I didn't actually tick a box. So there you go. It was all just because you earned it in the very first place. And you could prove that. There was a lot of luck and, and networking that I hadn't ever done intentionally. But between mm -hmm. the preparation of doing the competitions, playing in everything in my hometown, where I just happened to be seen by the right people. You know, the, mm -hmm. but like I said, luck is preparation meeting opportunity. And I'd done the preparation. And then the opportunity suddenly presented itself. I jumped on it and here I am. You may have just given me the title for this episode. Luck is preparation meets opportunity. That might be the, the, the cap, the, the screen grab for this one. That's great. <laughs> I really like that a lot. Well, that's the heavy lifting. So I'll, I'll move this into the, the lighter <laughs> wrap up portion here. Um, what do you do for fun outside of music? What are your hobbies and things? <laughs> well, um, I mean, right now composition feels like a hobby. Um, oh, I love that. It's new, and I actually don't get any credit for it in my job. Um, it doesn't ah. get for anything, um, so it's technically a hobby. And I am grateful to Wavefront Music for publishing the two pieces so far, so, so mm -hmm. that's great. Um, let's see. I started learning Spanish as an adult. Um, mm -hmm. I trotted down to the Modern Languages building and took five semesters of Spanish. And oh, good for you. I'm just trying not to lose what moderate Spanish I have. I'm not fluent, but um, <laughs> that's been really helpful in the world. I know a little bit about jewelry. I've taken GIA um, accredited courses um, online. Uh, nothing major, I promise. It's just enough to make me really dangerous in the store, um, and I prefer antique jewelry. So I, I try to, I, well, I have to limit it financially. <laughs> I limit it, but, you know, once in a while, there's one of those like bargains that mm -hmm. is so beautiful and so enticing financially that like, well, I, I, now I think I know what I'm doing. So, um, so yeah, I, I'm a little dangerous in jewelry. And do you end up wearing these pieces that you find or do they get, you know, stored and saved away or? I do. I have, I have an art deco ring that I only wear on special occasions. Um, mm -hmm. it, it, it's beautiful, but it's a little too much for every day. And <laughs> right. I have a new ring, well, new to me ring um, that I just bought for my birthday last year. And I, I, I was wearing it a lot. Um, I, in fact, mm -hmm. I wore it at the IHS. Um, wore it every day at the IHS. And um, it's a, um, like a 1940s-ish transitional ring between the old Eurocuts and the modern brilliant diamond. There's a little transitional time in between. So, oh, that's fascinating. It, it's beautiful. And, and that one, that one I feel is a little sturdier and a little mm -hmm. less, a little less um, filigree and delicate. Um, so more appropriate for every day. 
yeah oh that's so fun what a cool hobby <laughs> like that's i don't even know if i want to call that a hobby like what a cool area of knowledge you know like that's that's so cool <laughs> That's great. Jewelry. And that was mm -hmm. actually therapy for torn tendons in my arms. So oh, wow. it was fun. I'm not very good at it, um, but, <laughs> but definitely a lot of fun. Oh, that's incredible. <laughs> um, and then, yeah, I guess we'll just kind of wrap this up with, um, do you have any, I know you have an upcoming piece for a conference. Do you want to give us a little info about that? It's exciting. Yeah, I don't want to let too much out of the bag. But I am nearly done writing a piece. Um, that one of my grad students actually brought me some music that that just needed a little something. And I got inspired with six different ways that she could, you know, treat it in uh, for her recital. And she ended up dumping it on her program. Couldn't, <laughs> couldn't deal with that. And so the second that she let go of it, I started. And so I'm writing um, an unaccompanied horn solo. And um, it's going to be uh, playable hopefully by like a sophomore performance major um, something mm -hmm. kind of in that level and um, this graduate student Brianna Nay um, she's going to she's pushed me to try to get it done a little bit quicker um, she wants to apply to premiere it at the um, hero I don't know if it's pronounced hero or her O. Um, it's capital H-E-R mm -hmm. with a little O um, national conference that is being held at Florida State University in May it's oh, incredible to celebrate women in music and, and so she wants to premiere it at that conference yay that's exciting um and do you have any you know places we can follow i know you said you're not big into social media um but do you have a website we can come visit if people are interested in learning more about you or any of that even if it's fsu's website <laughs> yeah, FSU's website i have a bio there um i have bios <laughs> in various um you know holton the blank and um national music festival um, I do actually have a domain, but there's nothing there. Um, I mean, I have a, a YouTube, I have two YouTube channels. One is oh, that's great. Ableton, I think, and that one my record producer handles. So that has mm -hmm. um, uh, tracks from, from the CDs, and mm -hmm. so that would be the CDs I did with Lisa. Um, and also, um, I have an unaccompanied horn CD out as well. Those were all produced on MSR Classics. So they have that. And then when I wanted to post a few things, um, I set up, um, I think it's Prof Stiebleton, I think is the YouTube channel, Prof Stiebleton. So, I think I think I saw that because you did a recording of Hi Havana, which I have yeah. linked on my website so people can go and watch you play it, which is cool. Okay. Yeah, yeah, that, <laughs> yeah. was, that was <clears throat> pandemic lockdown um, living room version. And also I had missed an email, which I'm one to do. And I didn't know that it wasn't a live performance. I thought it was going to be a live performance the next week. And we got an email like 10 o'clock the night before. You know, for those of you who've turned in your videos already, thank you. For the rest of you, you could get them in as soon as possible. And, oh, wow. and the next day was my only day that I had hours that I could set something up and do a recording. I had wall-to-wall -wall students the rest of the week. And, and mm -hmm. I thought, oh, no, this is supposed to be a video. And oh, no. <laughs> I frantically like set stuff up and, and the room that my computer's in um, is square and it, the sound was just bouncing around the room and I couldn't get mm -hmm. a good sound, um, even though I have like some decent equipment, but I couldn't get a good sound. I finally just plunked my cell phone up on a stand and sat down and played it. And in the middle of the only take that I was really digging, um, the garbage truck came up with all of the, the sirens blaring. And of course thing. and so so i had to do you know a couple of takes um mm -hmm. because it, then somebody rang the doorbell during one of them and you know, <laughs> it, was just, it, it was just this it was this spontaneous like at 10 o'clock the night before oh i have to record this tomorrow so i so it's not the best fidelity and uh you know but it is a live take from beginning to end it's one take that's great edited so uh mm. that um, yeah, and then the other one was done in the Luna Boliviana is also on that. And pretty soon, actually soon to come, FSU's performances from the International Horn Conferences. Um, yes. The National Horn Conference, the most recent one in Kingsville. Those performances mm -hmm. are going to be released pretty soon. Um, we've, and yes, we've paid royalties. Um, <laughs> That's important. <laughs> yes. Producers need to get paid for their work. Yes. Oh, we could do a whole podcast just about that. We may have to do a part two because I didn't even ask you about how you go about recording pieces by composers. You've done. You know, we may have to do a <laughs> another time. You know, a couple months from now or something. Yeah. It's a whole process, and and that's another place people can follow sort of your 
your work is through your students. I mean, I, I spoke to some of them at IHS Kingsville and they are doing some incredible research. So, I mean, if you go look up any of your students, they're doing great stuff. <laughs> it's incredible. Thank you. I'm so proud of <laughs> no, of course. They're the ones who do the work. So. Oh, they're so sweet. And and they came to my presentation and had all these great questions for me. It was so nice, you know? <laughs> I love that. <laughs> It's always nice when, you know, people aren't sleeping through. That was my first presentation. So I was like, oh, good. Someone was awake. Well, Michelle, this was so much fun. I could keep talking to you for another hour. I have still have so many more questions. So I think we'll have to do a part two sometime. But um, this has been so great. Thank you for, for coming on. I appreciate it so much. Thank you so much for having me. This has been fun. And I wish you the good. best of luck. Um, this is like so exciting, a new podcast. And and I'm I'm really, truly honored to be a part of the beginning of it, too. Oh, thank you all, so much. Oh, yes, you are you are right in the forefront of this all. And uh, it's, I'm looking forward to letting it out into the world. It's going to be great. <laughs> so thank you so much. This has been Represent the Podcast. For more episodes, you can find us at Spotify and Apple Podcasts or on my website, www.katiebethmckinney.com. If you liked what you heard today, please rate us five stars or leave a review. Thank you for listening.